Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello, and welcome to this EM360 podcast. I'm Richard Seenan, Chief Research Analyst at IT Harvest. I write books on cybersecurity. I work with IT security technology providers on their go-to-market, and I'm a trusted advisor to CISOs and their teams. IT Harvest is an industry analyst firm that covers over 3,300 vendors in the security space. In today's episode, I'm joined by Grant Osler and Mark Mellon, who are both industry principals at Workiva. And we're going to be talking about why assessing ESG in your GRC strategy is critical. Welcome, gentlemen. So let's start out with you know some broad questions. What factors should organizations consider as they select ESG frameworks? And while we're at it, what frameworks are those? I think a big part of what organizations should think about when they're selecting ESG frameworks or standards for disclosure is understanding what their stakeholders are expecting. So some frameworks or standards for disclosure in the ESG space like the GRI or Global Reporting Initiative have somewhat of a double materiality lens to focus on what's important uh, from an ESG perspective as it uh, relates to enterprise value creation, but also as it relates to how the organization impacts the environment, economy, and society at large. Uh, Whereas other frameworks for disclosure or standards for disclosure, like the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, now part of the International Financial Reporting Standards uh, system, uh, are really focused on just that one angle of of what's important from an enterprise value creation perspective. So once an organization works with their stakeholders to understand which of those uh, lenses of materiality are most important, they also need to work within their business, whether that is within their risk management team, within their executive team, um, bringing the business together as well as through that stakeholder engagement process to understand what topics are also important. And really, the frameworks and standards for disclosure in the ESG space are really just a, a vehicle, if you will, to communicate on those topics that are important. And I think you know one of the things that's most important probably for our audience here is that connectivity to the enterprise risk management function. I think a lot of organizations will find when they make that connection, there's likely uh, a source of information, if you will, on what ESG topics are important for that organization. And again, then they can align those to the appropriate disclosure frameworks and standards uh, to communicate to their stakeholders as needed. Are there striations coming about in the ESG world that makes different frameworks, you know, a better fit for industry verticals. So I can imagine a consulting company, you know, they, they're worried about travel and carbon footprint associated with it, but not yeah. near as much as a trucking company. Yeah, there's, there's uh, some of the standards in particular, the SASB now under the IFRS Foundation and the International Sustainability Standards Board. Um, has a very much an industry focused. So they have 77 sets of standards that are divided by industry and, and sector. So for organizations that are in the oil and gas space, even within the upstream, midstream, downstream, and services sectors of the oil and gas industry, there are different sets of standards. And obviously organizations often play across those different sectors and industries. 
Um, so they are encouraged to look to those sectors and, and those standards that fit their industry most appropriately. The European sustainability reporting standards additionally will have an industry lens that will be forthcoming over the next year or so. I think the big challenge for organizations obviously is just, you know, from this big alphabet soup of frameworks and standards, we've sort of just scratching the surface here, but you know, you can dig into the financial services industry, private equity, and there, there's other specific sets of standards and measurement protocols within those spaces too, based on the needs of those industries. And then Richard, I think, especially given you know your audience and, and their background largely in technology and, and in cyber and whatnot, I think one of the things we, we've got these ESG frameworks, but there are other frameworks that play a really essential role in ESG. For example, you know the G, the governance part of it, has a lot of cyber stuff in it. Like we've got to make sure that we are you know securing data. We, you know, in, in the S side, we've got data, you know, data privacy and making sure people's data kept. So I think for for the listeners, it's how these things kind of come together, right? So to meet the ESG framework, we're also looking at how do we make sure that the data we have is secure, that we're doing the cyber things we need to, we're managing data privacy, all those different elements, there are existing standards where you're using ISO or NIST or a different framework to help you create the right processes and controls and structures in your organization to accomplish those end means to get where you want to go overall. Does that make sense? So, you know, it's, we tend to think of it as all new. It's like, well, there are a lot of this is stuff that we've been doing and we should have been doing for a long time that now has a different lens on it and a different way for us to make, and maybe a different faster perspective to apply as we do what we do and maybe mature a little bit as we go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The Now I'm thinking of how um, frameworks and governance standards get adopted. And usually, you know, let's be frank, companies are drag kicking and screaming into <laughs> applying. In, Generally, in, yep, yep. Um, and quite in, certainly in the ISO world, I've seen that play out several times here in Detroit, the automotive world, it was all about ISO 9000 for quality. And basically the big players said, we're only going to buy from plants that are uh, certified and standardized. And that's going on with ISO 27001 and security too, right? So uh, people are saying we're you have to, if you want to continue to be a vendor to us, you have to be compliant. Is that starting to happen in the world of ESG? You know, I, I think we're starting to see it. I, again, I think there's a lag. And Mark can, Mark's going to add to this, I'm sure, at the back end. But as you're starting to see people think about their supply chain and knowing, hey, I'm going to have to be accountable at some point for my supply chain, they're starting to ask those questions is, what are you doing? What have you got in place? What's your story around, whether it's environmental or social or all of them, right? So I, it's becoming a factor. I know as I talk to supply chain professionals that I know, you know, this is becoming something they're looking at and they're applying it. I think it's going to apply in all these areas. Again, as I'm being held to a standard, I've got to go down my chain and make sure who's ahead of me, who, you know, who I'm buying from, who I'm taking search from. What's your story? Because you have an influence on it and you're going to be held accountable for that performance. And then I assume the regulators are not far behind in requiring you to follow some standard. They usually don't tell you what standard to follow. But they help you along the way by saying these elements, and it turns out the standards support those elements. 
Yeah, Mark is a real expert in the standards more than I. So I'm going to talk a little more generally, and he can he can add some real color to this. But you know, I think with CSRD coming out in in the EU, saying that you're going to have to have assurance. You know, you start with limited assurance. You're going to get to reasonable assurance. You've got to have assurance around this, and you do get to you know determine which frameworks are appropriate for your industry and your business. Again, I think that's why SASB has gone to you know, more than 70 frame, you know, different frameworks that are very industry specific. And I, I'm guessing that's probably going to grow in numbers. They get more specific in different areas to give things to people that they can actually work across and use. The thing for financial reporting is comparability, right? I don't want to be able to compare people across industry. I want to be doing things. So I think, you know, the very first question around, you know, selecting a framework, Mark talked about this is, you know, what framework is common in my industry if I'm an outlier to what everybody else is doing, that's probably a disadvantage to me. I need to be able to be comparable and have results and metrics that are on the positive side of the of the balance, if you will, I think for your group. I see. And then you just used the word assurance. You know, what what is ESG assurance as opposed to just the, the sustainability report? Typically what we see, especially in the US today, is limited assurance, which is similar to the level of procedures that are applied for a public company when they issue their quarterly uh, reports through the SEC. So it's uh, much less uh, rigorous, I'll, I'll say, than an audit of a financial statement uh, or a set of financial statements, which is required, obviously, for public companies on an annual basis. The form and shape that takes today in the marketplace because of the voluntary nature of ESG reporting is very varied and the approaches are different too. A lot of organizations have a specialized engineering firm that provides what is typically referred to as verification, um, potentially even a, a lower level of, of confidence, if you will, that comes out of that process as compared to this idea of limited assurance, which I was just referring to. Um, and that that starts to get into play a, a little bit more. I think we've seen that a little bit more as the expectations around ESG disclosure have evolved from an investor angle. They want to see ha or have they want to have that same level of comfort in the information that they're using for decision making purposes that they have in the financial statements, and they're encouraging companies to move in that direction. Uh, you know, we see we look back to the point on regulation with the SEC's climate disclosure proposal uh, would initially require limited assurance on GHG emissions, progressing towards this idea of reasonable assurance, again, which would be uh, a lot more than is typically applied for the majority of companies today. Um, so hopefully that helps. Yeah, absolutely. So if a CEO or maybe a chief risk officer, somebody you know who does a lot of the compliance work now, is just starting to kind of wake up and go, hey, I keep hearing about ESG, we should be doing that. Where should they start? Do they hire a knowledge expert to assemble the team and start working on it? Do they pick a, a standard and start working towards it? I think every organization is going to be a little bit different. The, the, the reality is you do need to have expertise. I can look within my organization, hey, do I have people who have expertise that I can leverage? and maybe free from other things. I may say, I think this is big enough and important enough for my organization to go out and hire somebody who is an expert and bring them in to lead this. Or I might choose to bring in a firm, an advisory firm to help me plan and, and develop that. 
and then there's kind of a spectrum across all those. I might bring an advisory firm in, but try and build my internal team that are kind of being taught along the way. So I think the reality is those leaders are saying, this is new. We've got to do it right. We've, and we want to bring in enough expertise to help us. How I choose to source that, I see a lot of different approaches to it, but they seem to be a variation on those kind of three themes, if you will. Uh, you know, Mark, I know you did, you were in the consulting space in this room for, in this area for a long time. What did you see as kind of the average or the, how people approach it? Is there something else that I'm missing? No, I think that's really, really, I would agree with all, all the things that you pointed out there, Grant. I think the only thing I would add there is, is just making sure as an organization goes about that approach, whether it's, you know, augmenting with some, some resources from a, a firm, an expert firm, um, whether it's hiring someone internally with, with ESG expertise relevant for their business. I think another part that's really important is making sure that the relevant parts of ESG get integrated into the existing business too. So if we take risk management as an example, I think we maybe talked about this before, um, but I still think it's worth repeating just because it's so important that, you know, when you think about what risk management does today and evaluating enterprise risk, they may be evaluating risks that are, could be categorized as ESG related risks. And just having that connectivity and having that understanding of, of what everybody's doing, uh, I think it is incredibly important and will help that business uh, as they continue to try to evolve and, and mature in their ESG strategy. I think it's really important. And Richard, one last point is, again, at the end of the day, what's your strategy as a business? What's driving your business? You want to take a strategic approach. So you see, as Marsh said, you, know, you may be already looking at a lot of things as risks that you're managing in your enterprise risk program, something like that, that are going to be categorized as, oh, that's a that's an environmental risk, or that's a you know a, a societal risk because I'm looking at people and how I'm going to staff my firm or whatever that might be. But this concept of not building new silos and breaking down silos and really collaborating across the organization, that's really essential to being efficient and effective at doing this kind of work. Right? When we work in silos and we work in our little groups, we miss things and we create rework. And when we can really collaborate across, then you've got something that really allows you to scale effectively and to provide the quality of review and and, and make decisions that really are going to drive your organization where you want to go. That Yeah, that all rings true. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, a big tech company um, like Apple, who started uh, reporting at least uh, goals, which was great because Goals are required to have a strategy, um, and you know they they when they're going to be carbon neutral in I think it's five or six years, right? Which is pretty phenomenal for a company that makes a lot of things. Um, do you have any insight into their organizational structure and how you know companies like them that have made grand public statements and now have to fulfill them? Uh, so. I and and you know I'm I'm gonna jump in and let Mark correct me. I'm not aware specifically of those things, but what what I am hearing from people as we talk is that um, again they're building a strategy of you know I, again they have a goal. I want to do this. How am I going to do it? They're building a plan. They're working their plan. But what what we're I think hearing in the marketplace is that those organizations like that that are building real mature and are maturing programs, they are putting and they're building governance into that process. And this is one of the things that, that I've advocated for a long, long time as an internal audit leader is that 
you know, we don't want to bolt controls on at the end because they tend to not work very well. We want to really understand risks and design and implement controls and embed them within the process, automate it as often as we can because they just work better. They're more efficient and they just don't have bad days like people do sometimes, right? So I think those organizations are doing that. They're, you're seeing them tap the expertise of their financial reporting teams who are used to this kind of thing. They're from their internal audit and their controls teams and involving them early to design those those programs in a way that they, and I, this, I don't mean to be playing a word, but that they are sustainable, right? That the program is sustainable and we're going to work over time and deliver what you need. Otherwise, goals are great, but if I don't do all the right things to get there and to be able to sustain that effort, then you're not going to make it anyway. I totally agree with everything Grant says there. I, I just would encourage companies to think about that in advance. Obviously, a lot of companies have already set those types of goals, as you mentioned, but uh, a lot of companies set those goals without thinking about those processes that need to be in place. How are they even going to measure progress uh, toward their achievement of those goals? And I think the more that they can borrow from other areas of the business, again, where goal setting is common and, and those processes have been put in place before, um, to put that structure in place up front, as opposed to, as Grant mentioned, you know, bolting it on in the back end, whether it be controls or other aspects of, of managing achievement of those goals. I think we've seen that too many times happen uh, on the back end. So I think, again, companies thinking about that in advance are going to be better off. Got it. So uh, Workiva has a SaaS platform that um, helps make all of this work well. Um, but what if a you know, a prospect comes to you and says, oh, we have to start this, you know, our auditors told us we had to do this or our regulatory body told us we had to do this. If they come to you, they're probably going to need the consultants or the internal advocate first. Do you point them in the right direction to get started? So we have, we, we partner with a number of firms who are outstanding and do great work in this area. I think in most of those situations would recommend that a partner work with them to get going. If they don't have a team in already, if they have a team already there, they would, would need some help from us or from a partner to you know get the, get the platform stood up and going. But I think that we provide some content. We do some things to help them to, to be more efficient in what they do. And, and my belief is most organizations don't have all the right people. Almost every organization is going to need some outside help, I believe, because you're going to be really strong in certain areas, but you're going to find some things you're not as strong in. At least every company I've worked for has kind of had that situation. So I think having those relationships important, having relationships with firms that understand the technology that you're implementing to help you get the most out of it, again, to take advantage of that automation, to help with the collaboration, to help share data and not replicate things that, that make you inefficient over time is going to be really important for firms, as for companies as they go through this. Um, yeah, my take. Again, Mark's, Mark's had a lot more hands-on in that particular aspect. Mark, any other thoughts? No, I think you covered it well there. Perfect. I want to thank you, Grant and Mark, for these insights and actually education, at least as far as I'm concerned, on uh, GRC frameworks and then building them into your existing uh, processes and controls. And thank you to everyone who listened to our conversation. If you'd like more information on what we've discussed today, make sure you head on over to workiva.com. We'll be back next week with another episode in our podcast series. Until then, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all major platforms. Follow the conversation on our socials at EM360Tech on Twitter and LinkedIn. And for more great daily content, head on over to EM360Tech.com.